0: Welcome to PM Lessons Learned, a podcast for project managers, helping project managers by sharing lessons learned. Increase your PM knowledge, build business relationships, increase your effectiveness, increase your marketability, gain professional support. Join our group and take part in our conference calls. Details at PMLessonsLearned.com. and welcome to another PM Lessons Learned Best Practices call. Today is November the 19th, 2015. PM Lessons Learned is able to work because of volunteers. We offer all the services we have on pmlessonslearned.com for free. So we depend on volunteers to make what we have available happen. So if you'd like to volunteer, just let us know by emailing us at share at pmlessonslearned.com. If you'd like to follow along with our presentation, just click on the screen sharing link on the left-hand side of our website. And if you're listening to the podcast, you can find the files under the files and presentation link also on the left-hand side of the website. I have everyone on mute right now so we don't get a lot of background noise. So if you have a question, just press star six to unmute your line. We have a great speaker tonight. His name is Howard Smolowitz. He is an ITIL certified and PMI certified project manager. He is a widely published author and has a variety of responsibilities in his 15 years with IBM. He has trained people worldwide on systems engineering tools and techniques. He is currently a first-line manager at IBM overseeing a large group of IT architects implementing service management systems onto some of the world's largest strategic outsourcing accounts. Tonight, he will be presenting from or on from the dance floor to the raised floor project management secrets of a ballroom dance instructor. So thank you, Howard, for being here, and I'll hand it over to you.
1: Thank you. I appreciate that. Yes, my name is Howard Smolowitz. I am a a, uh, IP architect and manager, and a project manager at IBM. Um, And within IBM, if you wanted to know something about me, we have a system we call Blue Pages. Play on the old days when we used to have the Yellow Pages, where you could look someone up. Uh, At IBM, we have Blue Pages, which is basically a large employee database where you could look somebody up and find out all kinds of stuff about them. Their jobs, and you can see at the bottom, there's my Blue Pages profile, uh, their job, contact info, experience, and skills, and so on and so forth. Um, now, what you would not see on my Blue Pages photo, my Blue Pages page, is the fact that I'm also a ballroom dance instructor with an organization and outfit in Austin, Texas, called Austin Uptown Dance. And I'm going to talk a little bit tonight about where these two worlds of mine overlap. I would confess to you that this, uh, you see the picture in my Blue Pages photo. That was not my original Blue Pages photo. They encourage you to put a picture up and people put up pictures of, you know, their motorcycles and their favorite sports team logos and things like that. My original Blue Pages photo was that, you can see that, that little kid on the right It uh, was me many, many, many years ago and I often point this, uh, show this picture to people who are, say, under under 25 or 30 as a message of warning to say that, uh, yeah, once I used to be a, Kid in a in a bathtub, and then before you know it, you roll out of bed. And you got that police soprano look going on. Um, anyway, um, one day my manager called me up and, and she complained. Or actually, she said somebody complained about me about my Blue Pages photo, and she said I needed to put something more professional on on Blue Pages. And so I searched around through my uh, my database of pictures of me, and I picked that one and I liked that photo. My mother liked that photo um, Now, as I said, if you look at through my Blue Pages profile and click on all those little tabs at the bottom, you would nev- you would see nothing about my other life as a dance instructor. There's nothing in there. But not a day goes by that I, these two worlds in which I live, my dance instructor world and my IBM manager and project manager world, don't collide. And if you were in the know and you were looking at this page and could somehow scrape the top of this page off, you would begin to see the first inklings of where these two worlds of mind collide, and I'll show you um, how these two worlds of mine do collide from time to time. So, what do they say about um, public speaking? Right? You tell them what you're going to say, you say it, and then you, you tell them what you said. I'm actually going to flip that on its head a little bit. Um, and I'm going to tell you what you're you're not going to learn today. Thankfully, I'm just going to tell you that because you're really not going to learn a damn thing from me today. We have uh, we were just chatting before the call started, and I was talking to Jerry. Jerry's got 30 years of business and project management experience on the call with us. He's probably way more versed in project management topics like that than I am. Uh, probably do a better job of telling that sort of thing. So I will guarantee you today that you will not learn anything from me. So you might be sitting there saying, well. Why am I here? Well, everything I'm about to tell you, you already know. And this is, I think, the case with most speakers, most motivational speakers. What I will tell you today is that you're not really here to learn something new. In fact, um, I will say that the title of this presentation, Project Management Secrets of a Ballroom Dance Instructor is a Bold-Faced lie. Everything I'm going to tell you, you already know. Um, What I would ask you to consider, though, is that... You might be here to do something new. I, um, I, do this, I do a lot of public speaking in a lot of places. And uh, last year, a couple of years ago, I was uh, asked to present at a project management conference, and there was a guy uh, who wrote a book called uh, Take the Stairs, and it was Did a great job. because probably 30 pages of notes. Uh, the year before that, I was asked to speak at the same conference. They had the guy who, a guy who piloted the space shuttle. Uh, Commander Rick Searfoss. Did a great job. Uh, And I walked out of the room, again, took pages of notes, walked out of the room, felt great, felt uh, felt positive, walked out of the room, and I felt great and positive and uplifted for maybe four hours. After that, um, everything just sort of uh, just slowly faded away. And by the way, this is not an indictment of uh, Rick Sear, or Rory. They, They were great. They were warm and funny and engaging. The problem is with me and us. The problem is I think we go to these sort of talks like this and we learn about them and then we walk out of the room and then forget about them a few hours later. So what I would ask you here today is not that you're here to learn something but I would ask you, maybe you're here to do something and what I mean by that is there's probably some aspect of your life, maybe it's a relationship, personal or professional. Uh, Maybe there's some issue going on, maybe it's some, some, uh, I don't know, conflict that you have to clean up I don't know what it is. It's going to be different for everyone. And uh, if you're wondering, you probably know what it is now. There's probably a little voice in your head telling you what it is. And if you don't know what that little voice I'm talking about, it's the little voice in your head that's saying, what little voice is he talking about? So listen to that little voice. You're here here to do something. And I've been presumptuous enough that I I put um, on the bottom of the slide, you're here to do something. I don't know what it is, but the biggest compliment you could pay to me tonight is to do something as a result of this presentation. And the reason that I say that is um, I'm asked the same three questions over and over and over as a dance instructor. And by far, the, the most important question that I get, and not the most important, the most common question that I get is, how did I come to learn to dance? So let me tell you a little bit about that. I learned to dance because I like to go fishing. And I know that's kind of a strange answer, but uh, there it is. So let me explain a little bit to you. Many years ago, I somehow got on a mailing list for a, uh, a religious singles organization. And I'll back up by telling you that um, you may be able to tell from my last name what religion it is, uh, and, but I will tell you I'm not particularly religious. I don't belong to a congregation. I don't attend services regularly. I don't... I don't give money to a congregation or anything like that. I, I probably got on that list just because of my last name, And they would send me mail. Uh, and this was days for email. They would send me these little, you know, 8-by-11 pieces of paper that were um, folded into thirds. And I don't know about you. I, generally, I just take my junk mail and I throw it in the trash unopened and... But these people were marketing geniuses and they would send me this mail, these newsletters every single month about what they were doing. And I guess what, what's the cliche about or the, the conventional wisdom about marketing, I guess you had to show somebody a message seven times before it clicks with them. And for me, it was, I don't know, it was a lot more than seven times. This went on for years. But being the marketing geniuses that they were, what they said, what they did worked, Because ultimately... After sending me this mail for years and me throwing it out for years, one day they sent me this piece of paper and I pitched it in the trash unopened, but it happened to land with the label side down and the back of it face up. And on the back of it, they had a notice that said they were organizing a, a fishing trip. And, um, you know, I kind of thought about it. I hadn't been fishing a long time and I liked to go fishing. And I think I'm going to call them, i go fishing. So, um, yeah, next thing, long story short, next thing you know, I'm standing on a boat, um, and I, I didn't catch any fish, but uh, if you've ever been in a situation like that, particularly in this particular uh, religion, and you know that if you're male, and you have a pulse and a job, and I have all of the above, um, then you are like red meat to the lions, and man, these people are just all over me, telling me about, oh, you've got to come to our next event, which is a nature walk, and you've got to come to our event after that, which is, a you know, a, of the art show and then the one after that and, the, and I was just backing away as fast as I could and um, then again marketing geniuses they just happened to trip on the right word and they said oh we're having these dance plays and my brother uh, had been a dancer and he always used to talk about it and he always used to say he always used to talk about it and I used to say the same thing that sounds like so much fun one of these days I'm going to take dance lessons. one of these days I'm going to do this. Well, of course, I never did do it. And ultimately, the only way I wound up doing it was that the dance lessons came for me. But I will tell you, I was 37 years old before I ever walked onto a dance floor for the first time. And while I didn't really click with uh, with these people beyond these dance lessons, I I will tell you, uh, from the minute I stepped on the dance floor, I knew it was going to be something that was going to be part of my life. So what I would ask you is, don't wait until you are uh, 37 years old, proverbially, to step on that uh, that proverbial dance floor and do something one of these days, if there's something in your life that you need to clean up that that little voice is telling you about, maybe you could do it as a result of this uh, this presentation. So um, I'm going to talk about some of the things that I've learned as being a dance instructor and how they relate to being a project manager and a manager at IBM. Of course, now the day goes by that I don't see the, the parallels, and I'm not going to not going to talk about them in any particular order, but I am going to talk about, uh, just coincidentally, the, the first dance lesson that I took, and the the most important thing I learned at that first dance lesson, and, uh, it, it was kind of a revelation, the first, the most important thing I learned at that first dance lesson was not what you think. It was a hot October evening in Austin, Texas, and I remember it well, I remember the teacher who taught it, I now know her quite well, and... Um, what I learned, and it was a salsa lesson, and salsa you start, they did teach me, how to start with your left foot, start going forward, quick, quick throw, quick, quick throw the rhythm, and they showed me how to do it, and so on and so forth. Um, I did learn that, but that was not the important thing that I was there to learn that night. What I learned there was at a surprising time. So, in most of our, uh, our group classes at least, people don't come with partners. They might, but usually you just have single men and single women show up, and you kind of pair up randomly, and then as the dance instructor, I, or the instructor that night, will say, okay, everybody make a circle, and men stay where you are, and ladies, uh, you know, move one partner to the kind of clockwise around the room, or something like that. So, everybody gets a chance to dance with everybody else, and the other thing that is a benefit of that is, as happened on that particular night with my first dance list, and we didn't have enough ladies, so they would rotate around the room, and periodically, I didn't have a partner, and I would have to stand there and watch everybody else dance, and as I said, that is when I learned the key message that I was there to learn that night, and the key message that I was there to learn that night was that, oh my gosh, these people are awful. These people are terrible. I thought it was just me who couldn't get this thing right, and I was a pretty good athlete when I was a kid. I was back on my track team, and I was a lifeguard, and so on, and they were asking me to do this relatively simple thing. I couldn't just get my feet to move under me. And uh, just uh, that little graphic, I'll point to that. Uh, you may or may not have seen it. Um, this is a, a screenshot from a Seinfeld episode where I guess Elaine is learning how to dance. And I've never actually seen the episode, but um, somebody told me about it, so I went out on YouTube and looked at it, and the, I, I just love the, uh, the, the way they described her dancing. Somebody said it was a full-body dry heave sense of music. I just love that terminology. So the lesson, or the, the, the lesson that I got that night was you're not going to learn to look good when you begin to dance. That's just a fact of life. Um, earlier tonight, I came from a piano lesson. Uh, about eight months ago, at the age of 56 years old, I decided to learn to play the piano, and I am truly a horrible pianist. And I will tell you why I am a horrible pianist. In fact, I just told you. The reason I am a horrible pianist is because eight months ago at the age of fifty six I decided to start taking piano lessons. Nobody looks good or sounds good when they first start. That's just a fact of life. But in the project management world, certainly in IBM, what do we see all the time? I see people expecting that we got the requirements right. Why was that estimate wrong? How come we didn't know what the customer wanted? Um, I don't, in many cases, even know what the final deliverable will be when I start the project. So I, my recommendation would be maybe to look at it as a more iterative process. And recently, we at IBM have gotten into a more agile mode, and I think that's a, a very healthy thing. So we've got to get out of that mindset of expecting to look uh, look good right off the bat. And something that I, I often talk about in my dance class this is the, the idea of uh, a three-month syndrome. And what I mean by that, well, I'll just read you my definition, three-month syndrome. You will, in your mind, I'll say that again, you will, in your mind, be the best dancer you will ever be three months after your first lesson. And what I mean by that is that first month, you come in and say, oh, my God, I'm terrible. Oh, my God, I'm awful. And as I said, before I was a pretty good athlete. How could I be so bad? Right? Month number two, you come in and you say, I'm terrible. But if you look at that guy over there, oh my, who just started, at least I've got a month on my up he's truly horrible. Month number three, you start to think and you start getting that big head saying, oh yeah, I got this down. I'm a great dancer. Until, and you get to be the best dancer in the world for about maybe a week until you look around the dance studio and you realize, okay, yeah, I'm a, I'm a badass, but wow, those people over there who've been doing it for 15 years and are competitive ballroom dancers. <laughs> they are truly truly badass. So, again, my lesson here is uh, start small. Put it out there, build on it, improve it. Uh, The lesson that I think we need to take is really from the Japanese and you may remember this from when you took your project management exam and and we learned about the concept of Kaizen. Uh, Kaizen is, is a Japanese frame of mind where they will, for instance, look at a car and say, well, what can we do to improve this car? The IBM way of looking at things is we have a problem oh my god we've got to fix it we've got to fix it all at once and we've got to fix it now the Kaizen way which I think is a much more productive way is they look at a car and say well what can we improve in this car and rather than going for the Big Bang and trying to fix everything all at once all up front they say well what about that door how is that door hanging on that frame and maybe if we make this small change to this small handle on this wrench that we use to patch the bolt which goes through the hinge into the frame. Maybe we can make just a minor, minor, minor modification, which may seem trivial and, and, uh, and useless, but in the scheme of things, when you take a million of those small improvements, well, you can get some, some pretty good cars. Uh, recently, this has been thrown in my face at IBM. We have a uh, uh, one of my customers is one of the largest banks in the world. It's not the one you work for, Jerry, but I, I guarantee you would know their name. And um, we came into quite a mess. And we were originally thrown into their uh, into the situation I described earlier, where we were instructed and known certain terms that we had six months to clean this up. We're now in month 11 of our six months. And we have uh, just gotten some good news that we've really done a a remarkable job of cleaning it up. But one of the things that uh, we discovered, and one of my employees put it to me just perfectly, she said the problem that we had is we didn't close the front door. And what she meant by that is we were cleaning up this mess in a a database. It was a little more expensive than that, but I'll oversimplify. We were cleaning up this, this mess in a database, and she said, but we didn't close the front door, meaning we were still adding things into the database using the old system that made these problems in the first place. So no matter how much we cleaned up, we were just getting more problems added, and usually more problems added faster than we could put them up. So a good way to look at it is to close that front door, start small, build on something, improve it, and eventually eventually, you'll have that dime and you're looking for it. Another thing that I learned on a day-to-day basis is that dancing is a project Learning to excuse me one I'm sorry one dance is a project. Learning to dance is a program. So uh, again, in our project management PMP exams, one of the things we learn is the definition of a project, and that is the idea that uh, a project consumes resources. It has a beginning, it has an end, it has a finite amount of time. Um, Maybe the dance that you did at your wedding was a project that had a finite amount of time and some some resources, but learning is a program, and I get a remarkable number of people who come into the dance studio thinking, okay, teach me to dance. I want to be, you know, it's my first lesson and I want to be a... I want to be a competitive ballroom dancer. And it, some people, it just doesn't take in that that it's a, more of a long-term proposition. Uh, and it's similar to the notes that I get at IBM from executives, I, and I don't know where you work, you probably get similar notes periodically, particularly if you're working on a major corporation. saying, I have decreed that effective immediately, you're going to be 20% more productive than you were last year. Uh, which, uh, to me, if you are that executive, please stop sending me those notes. You're just sending, sending those both up for failure, because that kind of process improvement is not something that begins and ends. It is a long-term proposition, just like learning how to dance is a long-term proposition. It is certainly possible, and I've been in a number of those process improvements, initiatives, but don't treat change as a project with an end, as in, you know, when I'm, I'll am i let you know when I'm done learning the piano, you know, I'll, I'll never be done learning the piano It's has a culture change but it does have it is a- it requires a culture change I should say but it does have a beginning and I would suggest if that's what you're going for now would be the time to do it again you're here to do something so
0: if we're going to talk about dancing
1: and this is the PM lessons learned we need to talk about leadership and, and talk about leadership there's no better place to talk about it than within the context of dance and I am showing you a chart I know you cannot read this chart but uh, if you are looking at this chart, and I ask you to point to the most important, I will say person, the most important position on this chart, where would you point? Most people, by the way, this is a, a chart I downloaded from uh, the Internet, and it's the, an org chart of the, the uh, House of Representatives. So most people would point to that box at the top that says Office of the Speaker, which I guess now is uh, John Ryan. Um, Maybe there should be a box on top of it or something that the U.S. taxpayer, but, but I digress. Um, in any event, most people would point to that box at the top of that says office of the speaker and say, yeah, that's the most important position on this, on this chart. And I would ask you to think about that. Is it the most important position on the chart? The guy who's leading, the guy at the top. And so with that, I'm going to go to my next chart, which I will point out is labeled a trick question about partner dancing. Stress the word. It is a trick question about partner dancing. I'm going to briefly get out of the screen show mode so that I can look at, uh, at your responses. Because I'd like you either to speak up and, or use the little chat session and tell me, understanding that it is a trick question. Well, and before I better back up. Before I talk about this, before I ask you this, let me just uh, give you a little caveat and say that for the remainder of this presentation, I'm going to be using traditional male-female role models on the dance floor. I understand that many, many women in this world are perfectly capable of leading and being great leaders. My boss is a woman. Her boss is a woman. Her boss is a woman. Her boss is a woman. And if you go high enough up the chain at IBM, ultimately everybody's boss is a woman because the chairman and CEO of IBM is named Ginny Ormedy. Obviously, a female. So for this presentation, though, I'm going to be using that traditional male-female role. Please don't have me sent off to you know, Siberia, some gulag somewhere for sensitivity training and things like that. So with that in mind, and having said that this is a trick question, what is the lady's primary role? Anybody got a guess? Looking in the chat. Now, most people would say that it is following. The lady's primary role, Cherry. He put leader. Most people would say that the ladies the ladies' the, the primary job on the dance floor is to follow. And yes, yeah, and that's what people are saying now. And I and I would tend to agree with that. Now here's where the trick the question part comes in. What's the man's primary job? And already somebody has said men lead. And I would say, well, maybe. Um, I would say that's actually, that is certainly an important thing that the men do, but that is not the man's primary job. The man's primary job, to me, is making the lady look good. And I stress this in all of my classes. Now, you're going to make her look good by leading, but that's not your primary job. That's, uh, that's really how you do it, not, not what you do. Um, because I would ask you to reflect on, if you are out there on the dance floor uh, and you've got that, that one leader at the top, who is, more, who is most important? Can you do it without the other person? And I would suggest to you, no. You cannot be an effective leader without, you know, you can't be an effective chief without the Indians, so to speak. And I have worked for people who are interested in making sure that they, they look good and, and only they look good. And I would call them them stars. I'll talk more about being a star later on. If you want to be a star, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think as a leader and a project manager, I'm more important in supporting my, my team. Um, so um, keep in mind, you can't do it without the people under you. Uh, with Owen, my charts... With that in mind, if I'm going to be talking about leadership, I probably need to give you the definition of a leader. And um, I think um, years ago, I, I took a class at IBM, a leadership class, and they defined leadership as the being able to get somebody to do something they wouldn't otherwise do and to do it voluntarily, or words to that effect, being able to get people to do something they wouldn't otherwise do and do it voluntarily. And I think that's an okay definition, but I remember when I took that class, I I did raise my hand and said that that's fine, but I think a a true definition of a good leader is somebody who makes other leaders. And I see this on the dance floor. Um, First of all, One of the issues that I have is that lesson that I talked about earlier in the class, that's also a lesson, was actually not really my first dance lesson. That was my first formal dance lesson at a dance studio, but any number of women had had tried to teach me to dance, and the way they had tried to teach me to dance was by taking me onto the dance floor and somehow dancing in front of me. And I guess the idea was that if they're doing this dance in front of me, I'm somehow going to be able to reverse engineer it and learn to lead it, um, which is about as ridiculous as the idea of playing a Beatles record for me and expecting that, you know, because I've heard them play Hey Jude, now I can write a song like John Lennon and Paul McCartney. So dancing in front of me is not the same as teaching me to dance. And I think uh, our obligation as project managers is to create other project managers and other leaders. Uh, with that said, I do actually do this in my in my both dance world and IBM world. Um, periodically, I am called upon to train other dance instructors. And the way that we usually work it is uh, somebody's been learning to dance for a while, and maybe they are learning the other part for a while, and then eventually they've got to stand in front of a classroom full of people and and, and teach it. And one of the things that, it's it's an interesting phenomenon that happens because generally the first time in front of a crowd, I tell them I'm going to have them teach something relatively simple, ladies on norm current or something like that and uh, immediately they go into a panic mode thinking oh my god how do I do that what are the mechanics of this where do I raise my arm you know on what foot do I turn and all this that, that other thing and, and usually I have to tell them to relax by this time in their dance career they've led it or, or followed it um, probably thousands of times the mechanics are there what I usually tell them as far as being a leader and a teacher is what's way more important is the energy that they bring to the room I try to be very conscious of the energy that I bring to a room whether I'm in front of my project team or whether I'm in front of a dance theater or frankly for that matter, whether I'm on the phone doing a, a presentation like this, what I find is that my team and my class and my students are a mirror of what I bring to the table. And if I say, you know, the crowd goes wild, everybody gets particularly excited, but if I can just shout it out and the crowd goes wild, I get a lot more energy out of the people. So, And this is something that I, I've been trying to reflect on lately is what energy have I been bringing to the table? Maybe something you want to think about is what energy have you been bringing to the table lately? Um, so we were talking a minute ago about about making yourself a star. And as I said, I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to be a star but I don't think you make particularly good leaders that way. I don't think you breed particularly good leaders that way. Um, and this actually happened to me at IBM a few years ago uh, I was asked to sit on a panel discussion with a bunch of distinguished engineers, which is a, uh, a fancy title for some high-ranking people at IBM and there were a bunch of executives there. And, and me, and probably, I truly, I, I am not qualified and didn't belong there, but um, I had a manager at that time. She was actually my boss's boss. And she sent down, she was present in the audience, and she sent down word, not, she didn't even say it to me, but she sent down word through my boss. And the word was that you're not like those people and you need to stop pretending to be one of those people. Now, I think a true leader probably would have had some, actually probably would have gotten some prestige out of the fact that one of her employees was up there, but clearly I think she was threatened by the fact that I was invited to speak on this panel. And, and she wasn't rather than encourage me. Um, she took that route. So I want to tell you about a star that I know who uh, from the dance world. His name is Gary McIntyre. And he is uh, without a doubt the best dancer that I know, and I, you can look him up on on YouTube. His name is Gary McIntyre. His uh, his partner's name is Susan Kirklin. And really, they are just uh, phenomenally good dancers. I think the last time I checked, they were number the number three dancers on the planet. Um, an interesting thing about Gary is um, a few years ago, Gary was at my house for Thanksgiving, and um, You know, we had a bunch of people here, and I looked up, and I realized, where's Gary? And I had to text Gary within my house to find out where he was, because he's not comfortable in crowds of people, which is a strange thing, would think, for a guy who makes his living dancing and performing all over the world in front of thousands of people. He's just not comfortable in large groups of people. And I had to text him to say, Gary, where are you? Dinner's ready. And uh, he ultimately came down. Clearly, Gary is not, he's a, he's, he's a very humble guy. And he is not a guy who has gotten to the top by in any way crushing the people on the bottom. Uh, what, what really sets Gary apart is the fact that he has taken this, this gift that he's got um, and, and polished it and cultivated it. And I was talking with another dance teacher who was saying the reason that Gary is such a great dancer, he's got great work at that, work that. He just works at it. He works really hard at it. And this brings me to uh, yet a different career that I've had in my past. It's, uh, before I came to IBM, uh, I was a journalist for many years. My, my college degree is actually in journalism, and I was a writer for many years. And at one point in my career, I worked for a magazine called Civil Engineering, obviously. You can guess what it, who it was geared for and what it was about. And I was once assigned an art, to write an article on civil engineers who had had in very, very uh, secure, stable jobs that they had given up. So, for instance, they were college tenure professors or they, they had positions as engineers for the government or for very large engineering companies, which at least at that time I think was perceived to be very stable, very secure, not so much now. And these people had given up these positions so that they could hang up their own shingle and you know, start their own engineering businesses out of the spare bedroom in the house. And this was a story about their experiences in doing that. And I spoke to one guy in particular who was a really interesting guy. His name is Ernie Schrader. And he told me that what you had to do if you want to be a success, if you want to be a star, I can use that term for an engineer, you have to find out one thing that sets you apart and cultivate it. And it turns out that Ernie Schrader was the world's foremost authority on underwater marine concrete, a pretty narrow subspecialty. But I'll tell you what, Ernie uh, was, I think at the time, the the U.S. Navy was building some sort of facility in the Philippines, and they were flying him out there every few days, every few weeks, and he was charging them ungodly amounts of money to do this. He said in his first year uh, on his own, he had... He, had made, he paid more in taxes this first year when he went out on his own than he, he, had, he had actually earned in the previous year as an engineer for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. So the lesson here, find what sets you apart, cultivate it, and maybe reflect on uh, what is it that uh, that sets you apart. Now, one of the benefits of being a, a dance instructor is that uh, I get to dance. By the way, if you look at that picture there on the next chart, that is um, Gary, the guy I was just talking about, Gary and his partner, Susan Frickman. Um, and one of the benefits of being a dance instructor is that periodically I get to dance with Susan, and I will tell you, I, I, was, I, I mentioned earlier, I used to be on my captain and my track team, and I was a life bar, and I was a pretty good tennis player, and various other things. I was a reasonably good athlete when I was a kid, Susan, who you see in that picture, is the finest professional athlete I have ever met. She is amazing. And if I occasionally, on those rare occasions when I do get to dance with her, in addition to the fact that she's a really nice lady, when I do get to dance with her, it will make my, my whole week. Um, now, here's the, the, where it plays into the IBM thing. I also get to work with stars on a daily basis. And... Um, Maybe, I don't know if anybody on the phone is or listening to the podcast is a, is a manager, but when you are a manager, periodically you talk to your people and you eventually you get that holy crap moment where you realize, oh my God, the people who work for me are way smarter than me, not a little smarter, way smarter than me. And in fact, not only are they smarter than me, But if I was interviewing myself to work in this department, I wouldn't hire myself to work on this team because I'm not qualified to be among these people, yet somehow I'm that manager. So I take the the lesson from my dance instruction world and I bring it to working with these people who I'm I'm honored to have have working for me. Um, When I'm dancing with Susan, my main thought is don't drop her. Don't trip her all I do is stay out of her way and keep from dropping her, she's going to make me look really, really good. Similarly, in my IBM world, these people are so good, recognize the talent, I've hired them for a reason, don't micromanage them, get out of their way, do, let them do their job, invariably, they will make you look good. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, I said one of the benefits of being a dance instructor is I can dance with people like Susan. Unfortunately, on the other end of the spectrum, I get to dance with people who, uh, we'll put it mildly, uh, are not stars. And I can tell you that anybody can look great when you're dancing with Susan Kirkland. Dancing with somebody sucks. Takes real talent. Um, but what I try to do is actually exactly the same thing. A minute ago I said if you're, if you're dancing with a star, recognize that talent and, uh, and, and let them do it. Similarly, if I'm dancing with somebody or working with somebody who's not great, I try to take the same approach. I try to recognize their talent. I have a... Uh, I used, actually, I don't have anything more. I just have a postcard that I have hanging on my wall so that nobody is so successful that they don't appreciate a sincere compliment. And what I, I've actually taken to doing is I went to the dollar store and I bought a bunch of cards, and these are birthday cards and anniversary cards. that, And I spent a few bucks on it. And among the cards that I bought are a pile of thank you cards. And what I've taken to doing is sending notes to people. Handwritten notes, uh, not email. And that say, hey, you know what? You did a really good job of it. If they have a birthday coming up, I actually send them a card and I write a handwritten note. Hey, I appreciate all you've been doing. That thing you did last week on blah 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 account was terrific. And the reason that I do that and the reason that I do that and put a stamp on it and mail it to them, is one of the things I found is there's some sort of there's a power to it. I guess we probably all have uh, either a birthday card that's sitting on our desk uh, and, and it has been there for months, or maybe you got a postcard somebody sent you from somewhere exotic that's that's on the refrigerator. Uh, that, if you got it in an email, it certainly wouldn't have that sort of lingering effect. But there's a power that you have when you put it, when you actually handwrite it and send it to somebody, particularly in this day and age. And uh, it only cost me forty-nine cents to do it. So, so with that. Um, There are people who are the best of the best, like Gary and Susan, and there are people who are, um, shall we say, not the best of the best, or really the worst of the worst. And one of the things that I try to do is, again, back to that strategy of recognizing that everybody has something that they're doing right and and trying to focus on that is one of the things I do in my dance classes is when people are... uh, particularly when I hear somebody criticize and trying to teach another student, and quite often they're not the best dancers themselves. I usually do an exercise and I say, I'm going to put on the music. I don't care who you're dancing with, great dancer, boy dancer. I'm going to put on the music. At the end of the song, I'm going to count to three. You're going to have three seconds to talk. turn to that person, tell them at least one thing that they're doing right. And uh, then you, everybody's got it. Then I put another three seconds and you've got to turn to your partner. And again, you tell that person what he's doing right. I will tell you what, sometimes it's really hard (laughs) to find something that a person is doing right. Sometimes it boils down to nothing more than, you know, you started with the correct foot. That was really good. Um, But I will say that everybody does something right. And when was the last time you told someone that? When was the last time somebody told you that? Think about how different your night would be tonight if... You had come home, and your spouse, or your kids, or or girlfriend, significant other, had just taken a moment to tell you, in all sincerity, something that they appreciated about you, and something that you've done right lately. I don't think we do that often enough, and uh, so I've been been focusing on doing that more. uh, Another thing that we do at IBM, with that in mind, is uh, just kind of appreciating what other people do. Is we do have uh, a program. That we re- Actually, we recently ended it. We haven't done it for a while. It's called Your Turn to Fly, and it's the idea that learning the other person's part will do remarkable things for you, either as a project manager or a technical person, or as a dancer. And this came into to me square in the face. When I first became a dance instructor, and I've known this for many years, but I can remember the first thing that you do when you become a dance instructor is I had learned how to lead as a male, and suddenly, because I wanted to teach dance, I had to learn the followers part. And I can remember dancing with a guy, his name was Dick, he was an older guy, and he was a truly horrible dancer. And he would just sort of stand in front of you and move his arms and expect that you were supposed to know that, oh, at that point I was supposed to turn, whereas the real answer is if he wants me to turn, he's got to lead me to turn. Now this may sound obvious, but this was an amazing revelation to me at... um, At at that point in my dance career, if I want somebody to do something, do it. And the only way that I had learned that was by being in the other person. As they say, walk a mile in the other man's mockery, dance a mile in the other person's dance shoes or whatever it is. Uh, This came home to me at IBM when I had a problem with my my laptop. And so I called up the technical support folks and they, they tell me, okay, well, we can look at it within 24, you know, we'll come by and get it and look at it within 24 business hours. and which sounds like really good marketing, but if you think about with 24 business hours is, that's three days that I was going to be without my, my laptop. And I don't remember if it was over a weekend, but if it's over a weekend, that meant I was going to be without my laptop for five days, which is just not acceptable at IBM. Um, and um, so I called him up and I said, well, if I bring the laptop to you, well that speed up the process? And they said, "Yeah, that'd be great. We can look at it right away." Um, and I happened to know where they, they were. They weren't very far away. they were built just across the street. So I packed my laptop, put it on my arm, walked across the street, and handed this guy, the service technician, my, my laptop, and now, instead of him being in my office, I was in his office, and I got to see his laptop sitting on his desk, and he had a, a piece of software on his laptop that I recognized immediately. And it was a, a kind of a dispatching and ticket management tool that we had developed. And I said, oh, you use that uh, that tool, which I won't name. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, we, we use it. And I, I said, um, oh, my organization developed that tool. Wrong thing to say. He started up on one side of me and down the other, uh, telling me all the flaws and problems with this tool. And the problem that we had was we had not spoken to the people who actually had to use the tool we had gotten requirements from the people who had the checkbook, not the people who had to do the job. And I think that's all too, that happens all too often, and I think we would really serve ourselves well if we made the testers work the phones for a while or make the coders you know, support the product for a while or things like that. So good, good practice for a take of people on a time uh, This is a chart that has no message to it. I just periodically feel you need to say that once in a while. All right, I want to talk a little bit about Dancing and the institution of holy matrimony, which I will say is is The institution of holy matrimony has not been um, particularly successful for me personally. Certainly it's been lucrative for me as a dance instructor. And um, we get a lot of people. I actually see weddings and matrimony have been lucrative for me on both ends of the spectrum. I get tons of women who come into the dance studio and I say, what brings you? You know, say, oh, I was married to a man for twenty seven years who, and I loved to dance and he hated the dance. And now that we're not married anymore, I decided I was gonna live my dream and come and kind of love to dance. You can probably imagine how many times I've learned, i have I did that in a in a week. Um, on the other end of the spectrum, we get a tremendous number of people, it's a huge part of our business, is people who have come in to learn to dance, their first dance at their wedding. And uh, I, I what's the divorce rate right in the United States now? I think it's something like Half the people are going to be divorced within five years, or something like that. And it's an amazing what a microcosm teaching to dance, teaching dance is uh, of, a, of a relationship. And sometimes I get into a lesson, and I feel like I have to have a whistle and a black and white striped referee shirt over people. And I begin to think, you know, if you guys are arguing over how he's leading a lady's underarm turn, what's going to happen in a couple of years when the money gets tighter or you're trying to decide whether or not have kids or move to another city or something like that. Uh, on the other end of the spectrum, it is nice. It's beautiful. It's refreshing because I do get those couples and it's not uncommon to have people and clear and it's almost never the guys who want to do this. Uh, quite often they're dragged in. And it's really nice and refreshing how often I do get people who say, you know, maybe he's not the greatest dancer, but they'll turn to their partner and say, I really appreciate the fact that you're you're here doing this for me. And um, you you sometimes wonder, I wonder if they're going to make it. They probably will. I have a couple, uh, they are not learning to dance for their wedding. They actually came to the dance studio to learn to dance for their daughter's wedding they've been there for a long time. And uh, they decided they liked it and kept up with it. And he is um, not a terrific dancer. Uh, in fact, he has quite literally drawn blood on her. He stepped on her toes so, toe, so hard one time that he, he broke her toenail and her, her toes started to bleed. And now she periodically, like, wrap, prophylactically wraps her toes in tape so, to protect them. But um, you know what? She smiles at him. And Joe says, Gary, I, I appreciate the fact that you're doing this. And you think maybe that's the reason that they continue to do this? You think maybe that's the reason that... I- They've been married so long. Oh, so who can say? I don't know. But I will confess to you that atti- you know, attitude is everything, is what I'm saying. And I will confess to you that this is something that I struggle with from time to time and maybe ask you to reflect on what yours has been lately. I will also tell you that I, I have found um, something that, that uh, I found a useful tool of, to help me with my attitude. And I found this on an IBM personal vitality website. And if I say gay, then it, it works. Is uh, take 10 paper clips, put them together, put them in your right pocket. And when you start finding yourself having that bad attitude, those negative thoughts, pull one paper clip off, put it in your left pocket. Just be aware that you've had that negative thought. And it is amazing when you are aware of doing this how you can retrain yourself. To change your attitude change your mind and change your thought patterns it's been successful and uh, one of the things that I say on my charts you're here to do something one of the things that I've committed to doing as a result of doing this here tonight is to go back to that practice Plus, as I said I must confess sometimes my attitude is not what it what it could be so um, one of the one of the play ways this plays out is um, one of the things that I do get to do as a dance instructor periodically if I dance on cruise ships from time to time Uh, People say, isn't that just the movies? No, it is actually real. And I'll I'll tell you how it works. I am hired by a travel agent uh, to dance on cruises with women. And let's just be honest. Generally, they're, they're women who have money who may be a little older and their passion is dancing. And they go to her as a travel agent to book a ticket on a cruise ship they would be way better off getting a ticket way cheaper if they just went directly to Cunard or Princess or one of the other cruise lines and booked the trip. The reason that they pay her a premium is because she takes that extra money and she hires me and a a bunch of guys like me to dance with them. Generally, the, the way it works is there are usually about three women to every guy. So they... The rule, the rule of thumb is that uh, these women are going to be sitting out two dances for every dance that they're going to get asked to dance. And I will tell you, they are watching and, yes, they are counting. And we do hear about it if somebody is not asked to dance enough. Uh, but there are interesting strategies that these women bring to the table in order to get asked to dance. And I, you know, I've heard of the same thing happens with presidential press conferences. If you want to be asked, uh, you know, chosen by the president to speak at press conference, you wear the loud tie or the bright uh, dress or something like that, and you're more likely to be noticed. Who do you think gets asked to dance more on the ship? Is it the lady sitting at the edge of the dance floor with the bright-colored clothes who's smiling at you and telling you what a great dancer you are? Or is a lady sitting in the back of the room with her arms and legs crossed, scowling? Uh, so I, I, I guess my message is we communicate in ways that we don't realize. And again, I... I uh, I think, reflect on what messages you have been sending lately. I I certainly have been doing that. So back to the idea of uh, the institution of holy matrimony. And by the way, Alicia, how am I doing on time? Alicia, go off mute and tell me how I'm doing on time. Sorry about
0: that. You're doing uh, fine.
1: Okay. I got about 10 minutes, I think?
0: Yeah.
1: Okay. Perfect. I'll start. I'm going to speed up a little bit just in the interest of time uh, and with that by the way does anybody have do I have any questions or comments so far okay so back to the idea of the um, the institution of holy matrimony one of the things that I've learned by being a dance instructor as and a project manager is that there are a lot of people in the world who are not project managers we get uh, I'm not speaking in hyperbole here I mean this we get uh, it happens a lot more often than you think. That people come in and they say, "We're getting married. We want to learn dance, our first dance at our wedding." And I say, "That's great. When you're getting married," and they say, "We're getting married," and uh, on Saturday, and it's Wednesday, and that happens more often than you, you might imagine. So, with that, I take my project management training and I apply it to this problem. So, in any project, we have, and I actually have a whole presentation that I talk about this concept of the, the four corners, or sometimes called the triple constraint. In any project, we have four knobs that we can turn. We can add more effort, which is reflected in cost. Um, we can reduce our scope. We can change lower our quality, or we can change our schedule. So looking at this dance situation, I can add more effort, which I don't think would be practical. The idea behind that would be that we add another resource to this pair of, this couple on the dance floor and maybe I go out there and start leading them around the dance floor, which I don't think would be very successful. Um, we might change the schedule uh, and I suppose it's, it's theoretically possible that they may put off their wedding for six months, but again, not real not well practical. Uh, we can lower the quality, which is not something you usually want to do, although, I guess, and, and particularly in the area of a wedding dance, they we came to the dance studio to learn to dance for City plus They want to improve the quality of their dancing. So another thing that we can do is we can change the scope. And usually what I do if I only have a couple of days is I work on a very few things. Most people at their weddings, and if you think about your wedding, what you probably did was stood there and rocked side to side in that kind of high school bowling pin thing. Um, so if I can just get them to move around the dance world with a reasonable dance frame for a minute or two, that's usually way better off than they would have been had they not come into the dance studio. But what do we usually do in our project management world when we're faced with that sort, of, that sort of problem? Well, at IBM, at least it used to be when a project got into trouble, what would we do? It used to be, and it's not this way anymore, that we would add people. We would just, you know, they used to talk about filling the skies with IBM. It's just sending them wherever they need to go. Uh, it turns out that that's, the data show and uh, there have been lots of studies on this, in, at least in software development. The data show that adding people is usually one of the worst things that you can do if you have a project in trouble. In fact, what the data show is that you get the cube root of productivity by adding people. So, in other words, if you added a 1,000 hours of manpower to a project, and I think we've all experienced this, I add a bunch of people to a project and they don't know where things are and they're interrupting you uh, to find out where, you know, how to use the copier machine, and then they're making the mistakes. They're, they're, you know, don't know where things are. They don't know where to put things, and they're constantly breaking things that you got to fix and so on. You add 1,000 hours, you get about 10 hours of productivity, of productive, functional usage out of them. Um, so it turns out that if you have a project, say a two-year project, and add two weeks to the schedule, you get a massive amount of productivity by adding schedule, which is almost never what we do because people are trying to protect their schedules. Uh, what is really, in reality, what usually happens is, uh, uh, this is just IBM, by the way, usually what we do is lower quality uh, because quality is easy to hide. And I, I am probably not the only person who has ever been in a room where they've said, well, we're out of time and money, ship it, we'll fix it in the field. Or or, or the other thing that we do, you know, you know so we lower quality, we release with a bunch of bugs and then we we're going to fix it later. Or we reduce the scope and we say, okay, well, just ship it with what you have right now, and we'll do a maintenance release in a, in a couple of months to, um, to add these half a dozen features that we took out that were meant to be in the first place. Whereas you would have been better off just taking that extra couple of months then and doing it right and releasing it in the first place. Um, again, I'm going to speed up just a little bit, just in the interest of time. I want to read you a quote, though, from Henry David Thoreau. Uh, the quote is If a man loses pace with his companions, perhaps this will because he hears a different drama. But instead to the music which he hears, however measured or far away, and I think the cliche that's been sort of shortened up into a cliche about somebody hearing the beat or marching to the beat of a different drummer, which is a beautiful quote, um, but I don't really want to dance with Henry David Thoreau because frankly, it works better when everybody on my team is dancing to the same beat, whether that's just one dance partner on the dance floor or whether that's a team of thirty people I'm leading as a project manager. I think the the message is. If you don't communicate clearly what you want, things are going to get ugly very fast and people will start dancing to their own beat and doing their own thing. And, uh, you know, one of the things that I often say is I don't usually ask people to dance. Usually I will walk up to somebody on the dance floor and say, would you like to foxtrot, or would you like to two-step or would you like to salsa? Because what I found is that if I don't communicate clearly what we're doing, again, things will go to pot very quickly, if you're not leading, and by the way, this happens also all the time. People come into the dance city all the time. The women say, "Well, I have a tendency to lead," and they're there with their spouse, and, and actually, that's not usually true. The problem is not that you're that you're leading. The problem is that he did. And one of the things that I find is once I teach the guy a few simple things about how to 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 lead, suddenly that problem goes away, and it's the nature of force of action principle. If you're not leading, and I'll go back and to Professor the terminology, you're not leading, you're not communicating, somebody else will, and it'll almost never turn out to what you were thinking. And, uh, so if you're not leading, somebody else will. Now, I've had people ask me the same questions over and over. One of the things that people ask me is, like, compete. I don't compete, uh, because I like to dance. So I don't compete. I have, a uh, any number of friends who are teachers, and, uh, then I must become a job. And for me, I teach dancing part-time. It's not my full-time living or my full-time meditation. So Then I must become a job. At the end of the day, they don't go home and put their feet up. I like to dance. So uh, that's one of the reasons I don't compete. I have seen competitive dancers on the dance floor quite literally screaming at each other in the dance studio, making a big scene. I do know of at least one divorce of some competition dancers who have divorced. Um, and I watch these people screaming at each other, and I have to think about it say, you don't look like you're having a lot of fun. And if you're not having fun, then why are you doing it? And um, Shakespeare said it. And he said, life's, again, I'll read you a quote, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player who struts and threats his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It's a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury signifying nothing. I used to uh, keep that, quote, take to my monitor so that I'd have to look at it all day because I think what it means if I can be uh, presumptuous enough to maybe paraphrase William Shakespeare, I think what it means is we're not that important. Stop taking yourself so damn seriously and um, by the way, stop complaining about my damn blue pages, sort of. So, uh, I've got a couple of minutes. Let me wrap up. Let me tell you uh, my final, shorts here. File messages: the top four things you can say to piss off your dance instructor, the, and these are in reverse order. Kind of David Letterman style. The top thing you can, the number four thing you can say to piss off your dance instructor is, I can't do that. There are things that I can think about that I was taught to do that I thought, oh my God, I'll never, ever be able to do that. That now I do without even thinking. And even though, and I try to reflect on that. I was talking to my piano teacher tonight about this, telling her that. Um, even though I'm a terrible pianist now, in five years doing this chord or something will, will be easy because that's how it was with learning to dance. And the lesson in that, and i is and I think it's a cliche, but it's true. If you think you can or you think you can't, in both cases, you're right. Uh the number three thing uh that you can say to piss off your dance instructor is I'll think about it. I have a uh I in addition to being a dance instructor, I'm actually a dance instructor, a dance instruction salesperson. Part of my job is to sell the people on dance point. They come into the studio, we show them the packages that are available, we generally have a little preview lesson, and then at the end of it I say, well, okay, so what is, the, what is your plan? And a lot of people well, not a lot of people, but some people say to me well, think about it. And I'm actually pressed for time, but I'm, I'm going to tell you a, a quick side story about I used to be a landlord. And I had a tenant who was a uh, she was kind of a slob well no, I won't say she was kind of a slob. She was a slob and she also didn't pay her rent and I evicted her and because she knew she wasn't getting her security deposit back, she picked up the few valuables she had and the few things she wanted and left everything else in her house behind, including the piles of pizza boxes and fast food wrappers and you know, trash and various detritus. And it took me a couple of days and I'm just hauling hefty bags worth of garbage out of there. And among her things I came across this sheet of paper that she had folded down in half the long way in on you know, like we sometimes done when you want to do the decision do I buy this sporty little sports car, or do I buy the practical SUV, she had pros and cons about her sleazy boyfriend on this thing, which I found and clearly she was trying to decide whether she keeps some more tosses him overboard to me the idea is that if you've got to make a list like that you probably already know the decision but again I digress, so I'm reading this list of hers and on the pros column, it's that he's sexy and he's fun. And he makes me feel good or whatever.
0: And on the cons
1: side, I am reading this list and it says he's moody, he's inconsiderate, and, and he killed somebody. And, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm reading this thinking, you know, maybe I'm old-fashioned, but if that's my list, that's a little higher up than number three on the list. So, anyway, back to what I was talking about. You come into the dance studio and you go through this thing where we show you the passages and go through the lessons, And then you say, I'll think about it. Well, you're not really going to think about it. You're not going to come up with this list of pros and cons. You already know the answer. The answer is no, no thank you. Uh, And we do this a lot at IBM. We are bad at saying no to our customers. I suspect we're not the only ones. Everybody wants to be a nice guy. Everybody wants to say yes. But ultimately, if you can't say no from time to time, you're going to tie yourself in knots, trying not to do what you're committed to doing. So I think most people would just like to be on the table and as systems engineers and project managers, it's our responsibility to to uh, to say what is and is not going to happen. Uh, the number two thing that will piss off your dance... Oh, so, the lesson. You already know it. Just say it. Uh, the number two thing you can say to piss off your dance instructor, Ginger Rogers did everything a Astaire did backwards and in high heels, which uh, and I think this was attributed to Ann Richards, who used the governor of Texas, although I don't, she, I don't think she said it, but I did make the good bumper sticker. Um, Here's the problem. It's not true. Ginger Rogers never had to ask, walk across a crowded room, find a woman, and ask her to dance which, let me tell you ladies, if you've never done that, can be incredibly intimidating. Never had to figure out, is this a two-step is this a tango? Is it a waltz? Is it a foxtrot? Never had to figure out, guide somebody through a crowded dance floor. Never had to figure out I want only leave this lady somewhere in turn. Do I lift my hand in, on one or on two and so on and so forth? Now don't, don't I'm not going to minimize what Ginger Rogers did. She was an amazing dancer. She was a beautiful dancer. She brought a tremendous amount to that partnership with Fred Astaire. But the lesson is understanding who's going to be doing what is as important as what I talked about a second ago, understanding what's got to be done. Uh, And the number one thing that you can say to piss off your dance instructor is, I'll call you to set up my next lesson. Uh, Now, most people don't come into the dance studio to buy one lesson. They usually buy a passage of a five or ten or some number of lessons. And what they say, what I hear from time to time is I'll call you to set up my next lesson. And now what typically happens is people come in and they get all jazzed and they buy these lessons and then life just has a way of crowding things out. So they really mean that they're going to call but then literally, and again, I'm not speaking in hyperbole, we do get calls from the dance studio saying I bought this package of lessons eight years ago but I never took them Can I take them now. And the answer is no, you cannot. Uh, so what I tell people to do is, if you're going to do it, sit down right now. Let's book every lesson right now. If you've got to cancel, that's fine. But at least it'll be on your calendar. In uh, fact, just a couple hours ago, I was at my piano lesson, um, even though I had this presentation to prepare for, because it was on my calendar. I did not let this presentation that I'm doing right now crowd it out. So uh, this... Um, Kind of brings us full circle to what I talked about at the start of this presentation. If anything I've said to you tonight maybe has inspired you to do something, I would ask that you uh, you take a minute and do it and do it now. Don't do it tomorrow. Pick up the phone, make that phone call, and whatever that that thing is, go and do it. Don't tell that person you appreciate them. Maybe run out and buy some flowers, or send that email that you need to to clean it up. So uh, let me wrap up. In the interest of expectation management, did you learn a darn thing tonight? Probably not. Um, I doubt it. Well, maybe the Ginger Rogers thing, I'll, I'll give you that. But uh, then I'm going to get out of screenshot mode and go and look at the chat room and ask you, is uh, anybody going to take any any actions, I hope, in, based on what you've heard tonight? And uh, is anybody going to take any dance lessons? And for those of you who are on the podcast, uh, my email address is hsmall at us.ibm.com. And uh, if you are going to do something like that, um, I'd appreciate it and you'd make my day if you'd let me know. So with that, I'll wrap up, see if there are any questions, comments, or emotional outbursts, and turn it back over to you, Felicia.
0: All right. Um, I... Surprisingly, I actually, don't have any questions. That was um, wonderful. I have tons of notes, and you made a lot of great points. Especially, I liked how you talked about closing the front door without, you know, letting while you're trying to fix up your mess. That was really brilliant. I think it's, you know, sometimes things like that that we don't always think about before we, you know, start into a project. So,
1: well, in the interest yeah. of credit where credits due, I'll, I'll thank Harry Crawford. <laughs> okay. That's our lot.
0: <laughs> All right. Great. Um, and then did anyone else have any questions for Howard tonight?
1: I do not. All right.
0: All right. Well, thank well, you so
1: much for having me. I enjoyed doing this. I appreciate yes. the
0: Yes. Thank you, Howard. And thank you everyone that called in and participated. You can download and listen to a recording of tonight's call at pmlessonslearned.com. And due to the holiday season, our next best practices call will be uh, in January, on Thursday, January 21st, 2016. And again, if anyone is willing to volunteer or if you know someone who would be interested in being a speaker for our call, please email us at share at pmlessonslearned.com. This is PM Lessons Learned, Project Managers Helping Project Managers Make a Difference. This has been a PM Lessons Learned podcast. Project Managers, helping project managers by sharing lessons learned. Come join our group. Visit our website at pmlessonslearned.com. Till next time, keep on learning.